gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero Superman, Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring The Thrilling Adventures of Superman Golden Age Superman The Superman Fan Podcast Superman in the Bronze Age From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast The New 52 Adventures of Superman Superman Forever Radio I've got a few things to say about Superman The Kara's World Podcast The Superman Vidcast The World's Best Podcast And... Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Danny Sapp, Cameron Stoll, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co host Scotty V at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Faster than a speeding bullet. Who are you? A friend. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's, it's... Superman, 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 Superman. This looks like a job for Superman. Superman Forever Radio, the weekly podcast devoted to the Man of Steel. Hello there, welcome to Superman Forever Radio. I am your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder. This is episode 48, in which we continue our coverage of the Black Ring Saga, which includes, this time around, some appearances by The Secret Six. So I'm very excited to begin with. Uh, but before we jump into our material this week, I have a lot of thanks, uh, a lot of plugging I want to do. Uh, I want to give a big thank you to Mr. Steve Eunice, who is the webmaster of the Superman homepage, the biggest Superman fan site in the world, Nay, nay, the biggest fan site in the world. Uh, Steve has been gracious enough to repost episodes on his uh, gigantic site, so hopefully we're getting some new listeners from that. And, you know, it's just an honor to actually be listed there on that particular site. I'm a big fan of Steve and his work, so it, it, it really is a big heartfelt thanks to Steve Eunice this week. Um, another big thanks is to Mr. Charlie Niemeyer and Stephen Lacey. For the new Podcast Network promo for the Superman Podcast Network, which you heard at the beginning of this particular episode. If you haven't been to the Superman Podcast Network, you're missing out on Charlie's show, Superman in the Bronze Age. You're also missing out on my other Superman shows, The New 52 Adventures of Superman, who I do, which I do with John M. Wilson, he of Golden Age Superman fame. You're also missing The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, hosted by Michael Bradley, who is one of my co-hosts on Green Lantern's Light, and along with Jeffrey Taylor, who co-hosts another Superman podcast, From Crisis to Crisis, at the Podcast Network, along with Michael Bailey, my co-host on Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast. So we're all interconnected. We all host uh, different Superman shows, different types. We all actually do get along and enjoy each other's companies and even do other shows together. So Superman Podcast Network and SupermanHomePage.com 
If you are browsing while you're listening, please direct your browser to both of those websites so you can find more Superman goodness. But that's uh, pretty much all the preamble I had. I'm ready to jump into this. Uh, When we left off last, Lex Luthor had fallen out of a helicopter to his death, and he was standing face-to-face with death. So that is where we're going to be picking up with Action Comics 894. This is the December 2010 issue, which came out on October 27th of 2010. The first cover is by David Finch and Matt Banning. It features a perky death in portrait, holding dead flowers with a bluish-gray background of skulls and Lex, arms crossed across his chest. The second cover is by P. Craig Russell, featuring Lex and Death standing in a wonderful heavenly landscape. This is The Black Ring Part 5, written by Paul Cornell, with art by Pete Woods, letters by Rob Lay, colored by Brad Anderson, edited by Matt Idelson. And picking up right where we left off, Lex looks down at his broken, dead body in disbelief as Death herself tries to convince Lex that this is the really real end. To show her case, she introduces Lex to the Life Review, showing key scenes from across the life of Lex Luthor. Still trying to rationalize all of this, Lex points out the recent events of Blackest Night, when the dead walked the earth, and Death says, well, she was kind of busy. But she did notice that. In the end, they all come back to her. Lex tries to bargain his way out of this predicament, but that fails. He also tries to play on Death's pity, pretending to panic, and this fails. After all, Death has pretty much seen it all. And no matter what, Luthor refuses to accept that he is dead, and Death calls a timeout, taking him to a magical purple room to discuss his thoughts on the afterlife. Along the way, they see Lex's version of Paradise, and through it all, Lex stays resolute that even in Death, Even in the afterlife, he will find a way to conquer. And Death tells him that this isn't that conversation. She just wanted to have a preliminary conversation for later. And with that, Lex wakes up, where Spaulding and company tell Lex that he was never dead, but Lex knows this experience was real. So Lex wonders why one of the most abiding principles of the universe wanted to check with him. Meanwhile, a thousand years ago, a prophet tells a cloaked man that in the future, a man will come. And Death will follow. But happiness will be the result. And the man looks out from his tower, basking upon two black spheres, and orders a city to be built around them, in which every detail shall be a trap, and one day, Vandal Savage will have happiness. That's right, Vandal Savage in the hizzy. That is, well, next up on our docket. But first, let's talk about this issue. I went page by page with this one and the next one. Slowly my notes start descending into more broader thoughts. Uh, So on this one, starting with page two, the scene with Lex not convinced he's dead, it made me think of the movie Tropic Thunder, where Ben Stiller actually picks up the head of a a slain director, played by Steve Coogan, and is like, no, this is all prop. It's all syrup. See, it's blood-flavored syrup. I also like a joke here that um, he doesn't believe that this can be death, because death does have, doesn't, he doesn't, (laughs) he doesn't believe that this can be death, because she doesn't have a scythe or skis, which is a reference to the Black Racer, a fourth world character. Page three is a superb scene. Very, very, very little dialogue, but the characterization is excellent. Um, Death touches Lex's nose, it starts to rot for a moment, which is kind of, honestly kind of gross. But kind of, at the same time, fitting for what we're dealing with. On page five, we get a bit of a montage That's right, it's a montage of Lex Luthor's life, including scenes from Secret Origin in which he finds the piece of kryptonite, 
we get a scene of Lex Luthor II crouched over the casket from the death of Superman. We see Lex's father, who Lex killed, if you remember in Secret Origin. We see him meeting Clark Kent for the first time, another scene from Secret Origin, and then a shot. A shot from either Last Son or Up, Up, and Away, where he's physically fighting Superman. And then we have uh, an adventure comic story that I haven't mentioned on this show yet, but it's basically Superboy and Lex with Lex's sister and niece, and then Brainiac's ship from New Krypton. This right, Lex Luthor, this was your life. Moving on to page six, uh, Death is saying that she had been a little busy. That was a really elegant way to deal with a strange continuity gap that would have resulted from Blackest Night. And is the montage music still playing? Really? Hold on, let me turn that off. There we go. Sorry about that. Uh, but yeah, it was an elegant way to deal with strange continuity that would have been a result of Blackest Night because, you know, there are multiple versions of death within the DC universe. Uh, page 8, death references this stage of death being bargaining. Now, this is a, re- a reference, of course, to the five stages of death, which is, you know, grief, denial, plea bargaining, finally acceptance. Um, I never thought about it as somebody who had just died would have to go through the same five steps. It's it's an interesting thought on a fictional basis. Uh, that's all I'm saying. Uh, pages 9 and 10. Lex's attempt to appeal to death's sympathy, in which he started panicking, saying, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do. It played really, really well, uh, to the point that it actually had me convinced that he actually was helpless and he really was losing it. And then on page 11, Lex really does lose it. So kind of nice timing on that, because this is something where Lex is is way, way out of his depth. Needless to say, I don't know that any of us would be in our depth, you know, having just died. Um, Pages 13 and 14, Lex is an atheist. He states that clearly. Yet he's starting to question the what ifs and his hypothetical, um, his hypothetical viewpoint is fascinating to be honest. I, w- I mean, if you're not reading the issue, I definitely want to, I don't want to spoil it for those that haven't read it. But the conversation is excellent because for all intents and purposes, you know, let's be honest, Lex is in the afterlife and he's still questioning if there is an afterlife. And with our, in the real world, it wouldn't play out the same way. But if you're living in the DC universe where people die and come back on the, on the weekly, yeah, you know, and you have villains that can, you know, mess with your mind. Yes, that mind thing I came back to was for a good purpose. Um, we don't see Lex's ideal paradise on page 15, but we do know somebody female is there. And this is an alternate paradise to the one in which he kills Superman. Which is interesting that what could be higher on his priority list, the priority list of Lex Luthor, sworn nemesis of Superman, than killing Superman. We don't see it, and that kills me. Because I just want to know what could be more important to him than that. Um, page 16, Death mentions bliss forever for everyone. Um, this is going to be important to the overall plot. I don't really have a, a striking note, but next week you'll see why. I wanted to point that out. And I talk about Lex's pride a lot. Um, it's kind of my big argument for Lex Luthor. Here's the proof on page 17. Before finding out that this is a preliminary check-in, Lex is literally, literally face-to-face with Death and tells her that he will find a way to win. And we end with an excellent shot on page 20, with the landscape laid out for us, the black sphere sitting there. It does make me wonder if the black spheres traveling back in time, as well as space, changed the timeline. If that could 
inadvertently cause retcons, which is kind of a nice uh, continuity out if you really – it's got to be better than Superboy Prime punching the sides of reality, right? And, of course, Vandal Savage, the immortal villain who made his first appearance in 1943's Green Lantern number 1. Um, Savage has been alive since 50,000 B.C. when he was a caveman. You know, like the Geico commercials, caveman. Seriously, we apologize. We had no idea you guys were still around. Yeah, next time maybe do a little research. Gentlemen, are we ready to order? I'll have the roast duck with the mango salsa. I don't have much of an appetite, thank you. Um, he was bathed in the rays of a meteor, but not the same meteor as Gorilla Grodd, apparently. But that could be fun if the two shared an origin and just went two different ways. But Savage is very, very cunning. He's very ruthless. He's impossible to kill. I liken him to being like Deathstroke and Rachel Ghoul if they had a baby, and that baby went all hardcore. But he is going to be the guest for the next issue. Actually, we have a lot of Vandal Savage to look at. So let's roll that directly into Action Comics number 895. And following chronological logic, this was the January 2011 issue on sale November 24th of 2010. Once again, the cover is by David Finch with Matt Banning featuring Vandal Savage smashing a desk near Lex with an axe. This is, of course, The Black Ring Part 6, written by Paul Cornell, art by Pete Woods, lettered by Rob Lay, and colored by Brad Anderson. Vandal Savage visits Bohemia in 1358, the city he built to trap the man in the prophecy. In a hidden chamber, Vandal looks upon the two Black Ring energy orbs we saw at the end of last issue. Vandal reiterates the prophecy. A man will make his presence felt. He will not wish Vandal well, but this man's adventure will bring Vandal happiness. And Vandal shows the guards an ancient picture of what will someday be Lex Luthor. Throughout the centuries, Vandal visits his city, seeing the townspeople crazed from the effects of the orbs, waiting for the day that the man visits this wonderful trap he has set. But the centuries pass, and Lex does not arrive in the city, and when Lex hits it big, Vandal identifies him but makes subtle invitations to the, to the city, all of which Lex refuses. Back in the present, Lex dreams of the orbs, all ten of them, and is inspired to change the energy on the remaining eight, just as he has with the first two he's found so far. Now, four spheres are in space. Two are in problematic locations, but there are two that can be taken care of without making things awkward. So, Lex visits Spalding, who is working on a starship that combines Thanagarian and Apocalyptian tech, but Lex doesn't need that at the moment. He just needs to launch a satellite into space with a black ring sensor aboard. So, this time, when Vandal does his check on the city, that is a trap, He's surprised to find that the black energy has been changed because Lex got to it from orbit. The next day, Team Luthor returns from Australia, noting that some of their co-workers in Lex Towers seemed stressed on the phone, a little off. Lex and Lois don't make it too far when Lois seizes up and shuts down. Lex knows he has a visitor and enters a boardroom to see that Vandal Savage has taken the bulk of Lex's executive staff hostage, as well as wired Lex Towers with enough explosives to take the whole structure down. With the building's defenses taken offline, Lex uses a secret hidden button to summon a Hail Mary last hope, the Secret Six. Since I haven't been one for great segue material in this series, I'm going to just jump into my notes with page three. The prophecy itself is a, actually a pretty big retcon for Vandal Savage, and yet another thing that's played pretty elegantly, much like the, the death, things, death thing saying she was busy. Um, page four, I like how the passage of time is displayed here. I've always been fascinated with the kind of the ongoing way to show time passage. Uh, we have different companions, different styles of dress. 
different technologies on board. I'm, I'm always kind of fascinated with sequences like that. Uh, page five is actually uh, just a completely original scene, kind of stuck somewhere in continuity. But page six is a scene from The Flash, volume two, number 124. This character of Frost uh, was casting illusions, messing with The Flash. But right after this, The Flash got back up off his butt because he had actually changed all of Frost's weapons at super speed. So he was never actually down to begin with. Uh, page seven references Salvation Run, which I will confess I didn't read. Uh, because at the time I was avoiding all of the Final Crisis tie-ins, but to kind of sum it up, uh, basically a ton of villains were imprisoned on an alien planet, and Luthor was actually the one who figured out how to get them back. Um, these are all actual, well, the last two are actually, you know, areas where Vandal Savage and Lex Luthor did meet, and they just kind of shoehorned that in, and it's actually done really well. I like that, uh, you know, we did get that random flash panel. I think that's a great way to kind of seal it as part of the continuity. On page 8, we have Lex's dream. And all I'm going to say is, you know, there have been a lot, uh, more than a couple, really, of villains hanging around who have mind manipulation powers. Uh, but this is actually a fantastic composition image-wise, which unfortunately gets reused and dilutes this one retroactively. And we do see that Lo uh, Robot Lois is in bed with Lex, which confirms that there is a romantic relationship there. Now, this isn't the first time Lex has had relations with a robot. We saw him romance the artificial life form Hope in Brian Azzarello's Lex Luthor Man of Steel. However, we don't know for sure if Man of Steel uh, or Lex Luthor Man of Steel is considered continuity. But as for us, for the readers, yep, not, not the first time. And it kind of makes sense when you think about it. Lex would want to create his perfect companion. Um, pages 9 and 10, Lex seems to buy into the dream a bit too easily for a guy who doubted death just last issue. And did I mention there are villains with mind powers around? Page 13, um, there's a scene where these guards are uh, kind of accosted by Vandal Savage upon he finding those two orbs change to white energy. And, you know, he says, well, the penalty, you know the penalty. So they start by putting the guns to their heads, to each other, and then on Vandal Savage. So I'm wondering if they do know who he is, because he could be see this unseen employer. And if they do know and they kind of know what he's made of, why would you pull a gun? Ah, uh, it's dumb. Page 16, I had to reread this page because it wasn't clear what was going on as they were coming in. Um, just because the characters are kind of, I, 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 I lay that more on the art because the characters are kind of indistinguishable. And on page 17, I hate when my robot girlfriend breaks down. I just hate that. Uh, but it is sweet when Lex closes her eyes and kind of moves forward. And finally, on page 20, The Secret Six. One of the things that made me most excited about approaching this story. Because we have Catman, Deadshot, Bane. Villains kind of past their prime or B-level or Mort villains. And they're joined by new characters, Scandal Savage, Ragdoll, and the mysterious Jeanette, who is basically, well, she's a silver banshee. Let's call it what it is. Um, they are now a team of mercenaries who will do any and every job if the pay is right. And at that time, this book was one of the best books on the shelf, month to month, top of my pull list with no question. Um, the concept of the Secret Six started in the 60s as a team of, of fairly straightforward superheroes who basically worked as a sort of Charlie's Angels type squad at the bequest of the mysterious, mysterious Mockingbird, whose identity wasn't revealed until the concept was revived 20 years later. 
Now, after that version of the team bowed out with the end of the Action Comics Weekly period, the concept was revisited in Infinite Crisis with the tie-in Villains United. So it was actually staffed with villains to combat the Society of Villains. That's right, villain on villain. Now, this time, Mockingbird turned out to be Lex Luthor, the real Lex Luthor who was combating Alexander Luthor. And Alex was impersonating Lex and leading the villainous society. So after that, and a few membership changes, Gail Simone took the Secret Six into their own ongoing, and it quickly became the wittiest, most intense, and funny books, delivering a caliber of quality on a monthly basis not found anywhere else in the DC Universe. So, what does this team of mercenaries have to do with Vandal Savage and his takeover? Well, we'll take a look at that in the next issue, which we will look at right after this podcast promo break. So stay with me. Twenty-seven years ago, the planet Krypton was destroyed. An infant boy and his cousin survived and have found a refuge here on Earth. But they were not alone. Another scion of the House of El has arrived. Why is he here? What is his purpose? And how will Cal El and Kara Zorel respond when faced with Hell on Earth? The New 52 Adventures of Superman is a podcast that covers the current adventures of Superman and his family of characters. Join John Wilson, J. David Weeder, and guest host Charlie Niemeyer as they review and discuss this latest crossover adventure. The New 52 Adventures of Superman is available on iTunes and at new52superman.libsyn.com. And just to reiterate the trailer that you literally just heard, we are covering the first Superbook crossover on the New 52 Adventures of Superman. Now, the episodes won't be out when this episode hits, but check out the show anyway because it's good and I'm on it. So is some guy named John Wilson, but but I'm there. And um, what did it feel like that first segment just flew by to anybody else? I didn't realize how quickly that would go. Um... But I bring that up because with the next two issues and next week, next week's issues, I kind of employed a different approach to my notes to how I was viewing the story. And the reason being, uh, I was halfway through writing up this episode when I got sick. And when I regained my strength and got back, you know, back into the game, I just kind of changed the way I was looking at it. So I'm just letting you know as we enter Action Comics 896. This is the February 2011 issue, released on December 29th of 2010, right after Christmas. Um, Once again, we have a cover by David Finch and Matt Banning. Uh, This time, Vandal Savage fights off an all-out assault by the Secret Six, as Luthor watches from the background. Um, The Black Ring Part 7 has pretty much the same uh, crew working on it. Paul Cornell, Pete Woods, Rob Lay, and Brad Anderson. And the Secret Six have already infiltrated LexCorp Towers when the issue opens, and they are watching the intense standoff in the boardroom from an air vent. Scandal Savage, who is indeed the daughter of Vandal Savage, explains that Luthor put the team on retainer by taking her out to dinner and promising something very, very secret if they would come at his beck and call. As they spy the situation, Scandal realizes that the person they have arrived to terminate is her own father, Vandal Savage. In another part of the building, Lex's secretary reactivates Lois, and as it turns out that this is actually Mr. Mind, talking through the body of the woman, and Mind says that when Lois shot 
at Lex's captors in 890, she infected them with nanites that reprogrammed them, but the only change was to hang Lex Luthor upside down rather than right side up. Mr. Mind accuses Lois of working for some yet unseen entity in this drama, and Lois shocks the crap out of the host body. Back in the boardroom, Mr. Manor's deadshot drops down and starts shooting the place up, and in the melee, the detonator to all the explosives planted in LexCorp Towers falls out of Vandal's hand and starts bouncing around the room, threatening to hit the button and blow everyone to kingdom come. As the detonator bounces, Lois arrives, guns a-blazing, and swats Scandal Savage, thinking she is on the other side. This sets Vandal Savage off, and he splits Lois right down the middle with his axe. But the detonator is still flying around the room, and everyone watches in stunned horror as we end with the simple beep of the detonator as it lands, button depressed. Boom! Kidding, kidding. Um, I do want to make one correction, because beginning with the first page, there is actually a seventh member of the team, and that is Black Alice, who can basically channel the powers of any magical character in the DC Universe. Bane, who is leading the team, puts Scandal Savage on reserve, and it's odd that Bane's fatherly protectiveness didn't get played up more in light of there being the presence of her actual father. But I did mention that Luther acted as a mock as Mockingbird in the team's original outing from Villains United, so the connection is a bit clearer and explains the scene on pages 2 and 3 when Scandal and Lex have dinner to discuss Lex's proposal. I was a bit leery about anyone but Gail Simone handling these characters, but I'm going to be honest. Cornell's dialogue on page 4 made me feel at ease. He has a good grip on these characters, and the tone is fitting. And I can't help but feel that nothing says villain or diehard more than a boardroom hostage situation. But Hans Gruber didn't have an awesome axe. Who cares? So elsewhere, on pages 6 and eight through 8, we actually get the revelation that was hinted at in 892. Lois reprogrammed Mr. Mind's cronies to hang Lex upside down. Now there are other forces at work here. And it's been somewhat subtle so far, in that not at all kind of way. But we do know that it isn't the off-panel entity that Mr. Mind was talking to in 891. So, how many hands are there in the Black Ring Pot? We're going to find out next week. And I think the answer will actually shock you if you haven't read this story. And on page 9, leave it to Deadshot to start the party. Now, Deadshot made his first appearance in Batman number 59, where he had, I kid you not, this horrid costume where he had a top coat and tails look, um, kind of like a gentleman ghost type of outfit. Now, he would change it later to kind of the red jumpsuit and reflective metal face with a scope, but uh, his real name is Floyd Lawton. He is not Mr. Manners. That was sarcasm a little bit earlier, despite the origins of his gentlemanly garb. And my biggest question of the issue comes with page 10. What kind of material is that detonator made of? Is it rubber? Ooh, ooh, is it flubber? I bet it's flubber because it bounces around the room perpetually for 10 pages, which is suspenseful, but it takes a bit to suspend my disbelief. My next biggest unanswered question is on page 11. Why does Lois show up wearing the leather aviator outfit and flight cap that we saw on the terrorist Mr. Mind killed in issue 890? Now, I thought it was a bit of a red flag if we hadn't had a very clear scene just a few pages ago stating that Mr. Mind's goons were on a separate agenda. Or... I guess I would wonder if there was a connection, which kind of, kind of, you know, could be very fun. But this is just a, from what I can see here, just a simple art choice. Um, Ragdoll, 
Ragdoll on page 12 states that he likes women with big guns. I don't know how to gently say this, but um, Ragdoll doesn't have the necessary parts to appreciate or function in romantic regard. Because this Ragdoll, just to let you know, is the son of the original Ragdoll, who was initially a Flash villain who had triple jointedness. So he was almost supernaturally flexible. Now the Ragdoll we see here wasn't born with that ability, but actually had cybernetic implants put into his body to replicate the, physic, uh, the flexibility of his father. Now this left Ragdoll disfigured and lacking his male parts. So, awkward. Um, back to Lois, I gasped I, I literally gasped out loud when Vandal Savage split her into... It was so abrupt and out of nowhere. And this even includes my reread for this episode. So, quite a shocking moment. Now, along the, the same lines, we see Black Alice channeling different magical characters throughout the issue, like Zatanna, which is a great way to get me on board. Now, Black Alice is actually a Gail Simone creation, and as I mentioned, she is a young girl with the ability to borrow magical abilities. Now, she was discovered by the Birds of Prey shortly after her powers manifested on the night her drug-addicted mother committed suicide. It's a warm, fuzzy tale, kids. Um, she was a newer addition to the Secret Six team. Uh, she actually jumped in, um, jumped onto the team by trailing Catman and Deadshot. And, oh, Catman. Well, just to be honest, he started out as, well, he was a Catwoman knockoff. In 1963, he began his life in Detective Comics 311, he literally stole Catwoman's gig, pun intended. Gail Simone would take the character, who was the butt of jokes in the 90s, Bat Books, and sent him to Africa to live with the Pride of Lions, where he would hone his fighting skills, and he got his gruff attitude on. And he was actually dragged out of exile when Luthor had the Pride of Lions killed. So now he's a cross between Han Solo, Mal Reynolds, and Liam Neeson from Taken, all with a cat costume that suddenly doesn't seem so ridiculous. Up until recently, well, recently when this issue came out, Catman was the leader of the Six, but Bane had stepped up to take over. Now, Bane, we know, he's the man who broke Batman. And as the issue ends, on top of the continuously bouncing flubber detonator, I realized that so far, Lex has tried to reason with a crazed Deathstroke, Death, and now Vandal Savage, all of which has failed. So we're actually seeing Lex in deeper water than what we are used to because generally Lex has, he has a silver tongue. He's been able to talk or manipulate his way out of pretty much anything that has been thrown his way. But you can't reason with a bomb that was about to blow, which leads us into the last issue of the week. Secret 6, number 29. That's right, we are leaving Action Comics for the Secret 6 series, which has me infinitely excited. Now, technically... The story inside Secret 629 is entitled What Luthor Has Wrought. It's not technically, and I hate to use that word more than once, but I've done it, um, part of the Black Ring saga, but I don't think you can continue the story without it. As you can see, we were left on a pretty good cliffhanger. But Secret 629 is the March 2011 issue of the book, which came out on January 5th of 2011, written by Gail Simone, penciled by Marcos Mars, inked by Luciana Del Negro, Lettered by Travis Lanham, colored by Jason Wright, and edited by Sean Ryan. So, we were left with a heck of a cliffhanger, and this issue opens with Ragdoll wearing an angel outfit, telling us that the bomb went off and killed every one of them. The end. 
Just kidding. In reality, we're exactly where we left off, with the detonator on the floor, the button facing down, and if it moves one millimeter, everything goes kablooey. Lex pulls out a wooden box that holds a piece of gum as everyone tries to talk their way out, but Savage has decided that maybe Lex's death will be the event that brings Vandal happiness. Catman mentions that Vandal may be a huge piece of crap, and Scandal tells him that he should hear about her ninth birthday. So here we are, with that detonator ready to blow and its reverse dead man switch. If they pick the device up, it still blows. Lex isn't worried because the gum he is chewing actually projects a personal force field, and Vandal didn't disable all of Lex's security measures. There are still polymer-based cannon turrets aimed right at Vandal's daughter, Scandal. So with his hands tied... Vandal goes to turn off the detonator, but it's stuck, meaning it's gonna blow. And blow it does, taking out a chunk of Lex Tower and killing everyone, according to Ragdoll. But we find out that Lex demanded that Vandal admits that he was beaten by Lex, and after he does so, everyone climbs into the force field, sending everybody airborne as the building blows. The spherical force field is bandied about until Black Alice helps to bring it to a soft landing, Green Lantern style, and the fisticuffs continue on the ground. Lois pulls herself back together, and Lex orders her to shoot Scandal in the face, but the Six can't stand that and fight Lois off, finishing with Scandal taking the robot's head off, literally. But the Six also won't let Vandal kill Luthor, and with Scandal's blades at his throat, Vandal decides that perhaps he and Luthor can form some sort of alliance. The Secret Six leaves, and Vandal tells Lex about Scandal's mother, a woman he met when he overthrew her village, and Vandal fell completely in love with her. But to get back at Vandal, she killed herself. In the elevator, Scandal finishes the story and adds that she killed herself with the blades that Scandal now wears. The blades that Vandal gave her on her ninth birthday. Deadshot asks exactly what Luthor had offered to pay them, but the payday they just walked away from was... A solar system of nymphomaniacs. And Scandal wonders if they were a bit hasty to walk away. And we end the issue. I'm sorry... I don't remember any of it. You don't remember? For you, the day Bison graced your village was the most important day of your life. But for me, it was Tuesday. Now this admittedly would not be the issue of Secret Six that I would hand to somebody to indoctrinate them into the book. Um, not that it was bad, not that's not a criticism, but Simone is kind of working with what she was handed with the Vandal Savage scenario, and she worked within the sandbox that she was given, and it worked well. But the book, to me, was much more powerful when Gail Simone got to do what she wanted. Secret Six was a book with this very devout fan base, but it wasn't what she would call a mainstream success. Like The Secret Six appearing in Action Comics, I was conversely worried about the tone and character that Cornell was bringing to Lex and Lois. I was scared that they would be off in this book, and that was unfounded, thankfully. The pacing and the momentum of the story, they continue, and this feels like the natural next chapter of the Black Ring saga, even though technically, once again that word, technically not part of it. However, the image of an armored Lex with the orbs floating around him is once again overused. And that actually occurs on page three. And of course, nobody reading this would believe that it was simply gum within the box. Nobody was fooled. On page four, we get Scandal mentioning her ninth birthday, which seems like a throwaway line, but comes back like a boomerang later in the issue. Now, as I mentioned, she's the daughter of Vandal Savage, armed with her wrist-mounted double-bladed gauntlets that she calls Lamentation Blades. And here we actually learn a lot about her origin. 
one of the things I walked away from with this book was I want my own force field that I can casually fire up. Uh, that is one awesome stick of gum, but I think mine would be fruit stripe gum. Now, I say fruit stripe gum, but it would be specially treated so that it lasts longer. Because the flavor is great, but it just diminishes. And I, I would also be treated so it has that force field. Fruit stripes gum. Flavor and force field. But the line for the, of the issue belongs to Deadshot and his lustrous hair as Lex says something about no offense. And he says, no, none taken me nor my lustrous hair take offense to that Lex. You know, get it? Because Lex is bald. But the absolute standout character is Bane. Um, now this is a character that was best used in Nightfall. Really, that was, up until Secret Six, the only place he should have been used. Because he came really watered down. But under Gail Simone's pen, he became... He kind of came back to life. Uh, as something more noble and gentler. Now, don't get me wrong. He's still calculating. He's still merciless. But he's more refined. A great example is here on page 8 when he gently kisses Black Alice as she is about to make an attempt to disarm the bombs. He's just, he's an elegant barbarian. Now the fake out on page 9, it, it wasn't fooling anybody into thinking that the building had blown up, but in all fairness, it wasn't meant to. It was a punchline, a moment of levity, but not one that was really necessary. The, the story hadn't reached that point of intensity where comic relief would be required or a nice change. Um, that's a superficial gripe. I admit that. And here's another one. When everyone was in the force field getting bounced around, there wasn't one monkey ball or ping pong reference to be had. Really? We couldn't get at least a pinball joke? And then I have several small notes along the way. Robo Lois can pull herself back together and recover from abuse, which is awesome and will also be important later. Well, I guess it's important now because she takes a lot of abuse here, but it's also important later. And Ragdoll is seen in heavenly garb standing next to a parademon. Now, in the team's first iteration, uh, at least the villainous team's first iteration, the parademon was actually part of the group and was extremely protective of Ragdoll, kind of like a watchdog. Sadly, the parademon was killed, which is why we see it in Ragdoll's image of the afterlife. But the thing that punches you in the face about this issue? Scandal's ninth birthday. The fact that her mother committed suicide to spite her father... And then he gave her the Lamentation Blades. And I played that little clip of M. Bison, exactly what I thought of when I, when I told this story. By the end of the issue, you really do end up feeling a bit grimy and kind of gain a guilty conscience after reading every issue of Secret Six. But they were on a path of villainy, so why not ride it out? It reminds me a lot of watching the television show The Shield with Michael Chiklis. Uh, for some reason, every time I watch that episode, an episode of that show, I would end up feeling really paranoid for several days on end. I don't know. But that kind of brings us to the end of our coverage this week. I wasn't expecting to go through those so fast. But next week we do continue. We come to the epic conclusion. And it's kind of an emotional moment because we see the end of the post-crisis Lex Luthor. Spoiler. Uh, but this episode isn't over. Right after these promos, 
We still have an episode of Superman the Animated Series to cover. So you listen to the promos. I'm going to go get something to drink and we'll all reconvene in just a moment with Superman the Animated Series. In the decade of the 1970s and 80s, not even the great city of Metropolis could be spared the ravages of an energy crisis, supercriminal attacks, or disco. The job of protecting the city fell to Superman, whose battle for truth, justice, and the American way made him a symbol of hope for the city of Metropolis. Charlie Niemeyer in association with the Superman Podcast Network presents Superman in the Bronze Age Superman in the Bronze Age is a bi-weekly podcast highlighting the Bronze Age adventures of the Man of Steel in various comic titles. Follow along at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com My name is Steve Lacey, I'm a podcaster. A randomizer hit my long boxes, and now I'm lost in my comic book collection. Help me. Help me, listen, please, is there anybody out there who can hear me? I'm being controlled by an overbearing and fickle randomizer. I'm doing everything I can to review this book in the next 20 minutes. This is the 20-minute long box. The 20-minute long box is the briefest and most random of comic book podcasts. Every two weeks, a completely random comic book from my collection is the subject of the show. Find me at the show's site, 20minutelongbox.libsyn.com, the show's blog at 20minutelongbox.wordpress.com, or search for 20 Minute Long Box on iTunes. Prepare yourself for random. And we are at our last stop for this episode, Superman, the animated series. This episode is Target, with an air date of September 19th, 1997. This episode was written by Hilary Bader and directed by Kurt Gaeta. Guest stars on top of our normal Tim Daly, Dana Delaney, Clancy Brown cast is Robert Edo as an awards presenter. Jonathan Harris as Julian Frey. Robert Hayes as Edward Leitner. At the Excalibur Awards, given away for excellence in journalism, Lois is up for an award, but as her name is announced as the winner, she sees a note on a napkin. It says, you win, you die. Lois nervously steps on the stage to accept her award, and Clark's superhearing picks up the sound of a laser cutting through a rope, holding up a huge Excalibur glass replica. Giant sword. Great props. He slips out and rushes in as Superman just as the glass sculpture falls. And in the investigation afterward, a police detective named Bowman tells Lois to make a list of people who would want her dead. And try to keep it to one page. On the drive home, Clark offers to stay at Lois's apartment when a scary voice comes over the radio telling Lois and Clark that they are in danger just as the car develops a mind of its own 
and begins driving erratically. Thinking fast, Clark uses Lois's sword-shaped award to cut the roof of the car open, but falls out of the car, leaving Lois inside. She tries to escape, but is unsuccessful, and the car smashes through a guardrail, plummeting to the streets below, and of course, Superman saves her again. That is twice in six minutes, folks. Superman hands Lois the device that controlled her car, and the next day, Lois and Clark, who has his arm in a sling, visit Edward Leitner in his lab. Leitner, a former LexCorp employee, is a bit of a recluse, having been in his lab for 24 hours straight, and identifies the device as LexCorp material. He also congratulates Lois on her award. So next stop, LexCorp and Luther himself, who is testing out a new cannon. Lex tells Lois that he wouldn't be so blatant, and he is as disturbed as Lois is that this fell into somebody else's hands. As Clark and Lois leave the Daily Planet later, a rival reporter, Julian, tells Lois that he was handed some of her overdue assignments. In the elevator, the mechanical voice tells her that she isn't safe anywhere, and Lois discovers a bomb on board. When she tries to escape through the top hatch, the elevator sprouts jets and begins rocketing upward. It shoots past Clark and other reporters right out of the roof, clipping a helicopter on its way up. Superman saves the copter's passengers, and then Lois, getting her out of the elevator rocket just as it blows up, and that is three times in 12 minutes. At her apartment that night, Lois fitfully sleeps as an intruder enters. Lois grabs her taped-up Excalibur Award for protection, and the intruder fights it off, lifts her into the air, and throws her off the side of the building. This time, Superman does not arrive to save her, but it turns out that this is only a bad dream. Lois wakes with the start, and Detective Bowman watches from the building across the street. Lois calls Clark the next day, telling him that she can't eat or sleep, and Clark tells her to take it easy. Lois is having a hard time with that. Clark mentions that TV reporter Angela Chen called to congratulate Lois on her award, which she heard about on the news. This gives Lois an idea, and she goes back to visit Edward Leitner, and as they are talking, Lois notes that he has no TV, nor radio, and Leitner snaps because he knows he's caught. He did congratulate her. How would he know? Back at the Daily Planet, Clark gets a call from Lex Luthor, who tells Clark that the device found on Lois's car was in a batch that went missing when Leitner was fired after spilling the beans to Lois, providing her with the info that made the story she won the award with. Leitner activates a laser cage around Lois, and when Superman shows up, he can't get to her. So Leitner don then dons a suit that replicates red sun power, allowing him to beat up on Superman a bit. Superman is able to gain the upper hand, using fallen machinery to deflect some blows. Superman then pushes Leitner into a machine, overloading the suit, allowing the Man of Steel to free Lois. After the excitement, Lois asks how Superman is able to arrive in the nick of time and wonders if Superman has been keeping an eye on her. And the episode closes with Lois saying that someday it would be nice to see him when, you know, she isn't about to be killed. Superman helps her into her car, smiles, and says very simply, Someday. Then he flies off into the blue sky. Um... Thoughts on this episode. We're given a lot of red herring suspects right out of the gate, like the co-worker Julian Fry, who Lois actually beats out for the Excalibur Award. Julian has a lot of wit, too. He's a character that I wish would pop up more. And, of course, Clark makes an awesome excuse to get out of the scene to go save Lois, pouring coffee on his own lap. And may I say that Lois's dress is gorgeous. And, of course, we have a stage design at the awards that can double as a death trap. That's kind of a comic book requisite. Detective Bowman was actually a really good addition to this story. And he's a character who carries a grudge against Lois, um, but is almost a twin to Turpin in, in almost every other respect. And, as is the custom in television, we have a radio that seems to turn itself on at an appropriate time, broadcasting Leitner's warning. Speaking of the car scene, excellent animation. It looks excellent. One of my favorite shots in the episode comes when Lois takes her car over the edge of the road because the perspective is so awesome. It actually makes me a bit motion sick. 
And I don't know if I've ever mentioned how much I like the streets of Metropolis and the, the kind of the design, the way they crisscross and end up as skyways. Because when we go over the guardrail, we are precariously high above the ground alongside the skyscrapers. It adds a lot of depth to the design quite literally and creates this design, this idea that Metropolis is so big, so crowded that the roads must now pass by upper floors of the skyscrapers. Leitner is a very creepy addition to the cast and since we meet Julian and Bowman in the same episode, he doesn't come off as the natural choice to be Lois Lane's would-be assailant. Um, we get a lot of setup for the final fight including Clark coming close to touching the electrified panel that helps defeat Leitner later. Now bear in mind, we're going to be seeing Leitner again and Bowman, so this is laying some excellent seeds on the show and Leitner is voiced by Robert Hayes, who was the lead in Airplane, as well as TV's version of Starman, the ill-fated adaptation of the Jeff Bridges movie, not the superhero with the cosmic rod. Then we get an appearance by Luthor, and I don't know how many times I can say how awesome Clancy Brown is, especially in the scene where Lex calls Clark to fill him in, taking down, just taking him down in a rich, smug tone. That is as thick as honey and as bitter as vinegar. And another red herring as Julian exits the elevator before Lois steps in for her bout with horror. As somebody who isn't overly fond of confined spaces, I found myself holding my breath for this sequence and then laughing. The rocket-powered elevator shooting out of the Daily Planet's rooftop made me think of the ending to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory in the book's sequel, Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator. Not intentional for what I see, but the comparison is there in my head. I'm sure other people noticed it too. Superman arrives and tells Lois, I believe that this is your floor, which is, which is a line used in Superman 2 in the T Eiffel Tower rescue. Now when we see Lois Lane's apartment, I'm reminded that she is always depicted as having this immense, swanky, fancy apartment in a lot of her in, uh, iterations. This is no exception. After all, how many apartments have an atrium in them? Bowman may not be the perp that we're looking for, but was he watching Lois in a protective front or something a bit more sinister? Ah. And of course, Lois figures it out and doesn't mention anything to the police or Clark. She just dives for the super creepy stalker killer guy. I do think the last bit with Lois and Superman subtly, wistfully talking about seeing each other when she isn't in danger. The subtext there is excellent. And this episode really benefits from that. Overall, it's nice to have Lois feature a bit more, and we get a pair of characters that will add to the original continu continuity of the animated series, but it felt like a bit of an anticlimactic episode, and a bit repetitive with Superman saving Lois almost every six minutes. We do get a lot of really good animation, solid music, and solid performances, but it never really gels. So I'm afraid I have to give this episode two and a half S-Shields out of five. And that brings us to the end of Superman Forever Radio, episode 48. Next week, we will come back to finish out the Black Ring saga. And then Mr. Mixus Pitalik pays a visit to Superman the Animated Series in one of my favorite episodes of the whole series. So join me next week for Superman Forever Radio, episode 49. And the week after that, our big episode 50, Superman for All Seasons. Material that I am so unbelievably excited about to cover. So I'm really looking forward to the next two episodes. I hope you are too. Until then, I am J. David Weeder saying keep on fighting the never-ending battle. This has been Superman Forever Radio, a NatWorld production. You can find the show on iTunes with backlogs of episodes, where you can also leave a review. The show finds its home at supermanforever.com and is a very proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, which you can find at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. You can friend the show on Facebook at, at facebook.com slash supermanforeverradio. 
and email the show at mail at supermanforever.com. David can be found on Twitter at twitter.com slash superdaveweeder. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not gain profit from the images or related properties belonging to DC Comics or Warner Brothers Entertainment. Superman and all related characters, the distinctive likenesses thereof, are all properties of Warner Brothers Entertainment and DC Entertainment. All music and sound clips used on the show are copyright their respective owners and no infringement is intended. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. Thank you.